How is everybody today? Don't worry about college football. Oregon's already up by two touchdowns. No, the game doesn't start till four o'clock. But who, who's, we're not worried about that. Or about the Alabama LSU game, which, which might be on at five o'clock or something like that. I wouldn't really know. I don't. First of all, just thank you so much uh, to the regions, to the Hammers, to the Fuquays for inviting us to do this. It's a great honor uh, to come down to Los Angeles and to meet with any part of the great LA church, which is very inspirational to us in Seattle. Uh, I, probably over the years, you're kind of used to hearing that from people that LA is very inspirational and five gazillion disciples and 100 billion regions. And, uh, <laughs> But it's really true. You should know it. You know, I think, I think members should know it over the years that people are paying attention to what happens in L.A., and it matters. And we're thankful for your example and how you've grown and all the things that come with growth, all the things you have to figure out, including how do we minister to more and more marriages uh, to which we come with all kinds of stories that we bring into our marriages. So we're thankful for you, and, and you're honored in Seattle, and the Seattle church is, is thrilled that we could come down and be part of this together. Uh, maybe just to, to allow Lynn to kind of reintroduce herself a little bit in some of the, what the program she's doing, and I'll tell you a little bit about some of the things that I've been doing over the last few years that inform a lot of what we'll be talking about today. My wife, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, and a special thanks to Marty and Chris. We've had a day and a half already to unload, offload, reload all of those things that we need to do for our marriages and I'm just really grateful for the things they shared and I hope that if you don't have friendships like that in this room that you will use this weekend to begin building some of them because I gotta tell you um, we're really looking forward to sharing with you the things that we have prepared to share a lot because our marriage has gone through some of the most challenging times in the last 10 years. We've been married nearly 30 years, and who would have thought that it wouldn't just get easier and easier? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. We all have different journeys, and um, we've been on quite a journey, and we're looking forward to sharing that with you. Um, as Chris mentioned, I'm in a program, it's actually communication and leadership. Business is not my thing. But communication is something that I've really enjoyed learning about and growing in. And um, so, you will have to please pray for me and bear with me. I feel like I'm getting the flu and I'm really pushing through because I really want to share with you. Okay. When you have little kids and you catch the flu, you can't blame anybody because you love your kids. <laughs> but our kids are growing up and I want to know the adult that gave her the flu. <laughs> and I think I know who it was in Seattle, but I'm not going to say it publicly. Okay. All right, we'll see what we can do here. I don't know if Lynn will be back, but, but if not, then I'll, I'll pretend that I'm her. 
and kind of have a, you know, a psychotic break and a multiple personality disorder right in front of you. Um, you know, Lynn's work in, in the ministry, her work in our family, her work in our marriage are going to inform a lot of this, but also just her work in this, this degree program at Gonzaga. Uh, I, I'm very impressed with it. And it's, it, these days, I think they're looking for alternatives to MBA programs. So a lot of schools are coming up with subsets of MBAs. And uh, the one that she did in, in communication and leadership that, praise the Lord, she's almost done with has really been powerful for the church and I think powerful even for our communication. So the thing that I marveled at was that so many of the things they were talking about to use in organizational leadership, how leadership teams come together and function, are really overlapping with the things that I've learned in working with couples and with families. And that, that's a wonderful thing for she and I to work together on it. Uh, I, I've worked as an evangelist since I was or at least an evangelist in training since I was 22 years old and became a missionary when I was 27. Uh, I've been an elder in the Seattle church for the last couple of years. Uh, so I'm an elder evangelist, or as we call them there, of eldervists. <laughs> and if we add teacher to that, who knows what, what we'll come up with. But, uh, and then since 2007, I began working on this MFT degree. Do we, I think we have a few MFTs here, don't we? Do we have a few? Larry? who I met just a little bit earlier. Anybody else? There you go. We need more MFTs, okay? Uh, marriage and family therapists. And in the, the work of, of family health, uh, mental health, spiritual health, uh, I love this work. The marriage and family therapy program that I was at at Seattle Pacific University, um, certainly you can't compare it to what we've gone through in Christ and repenting of our sins and being baptized and converted and, and all of these wonderful miracles that have occurred. But I will say... Taking that aside, it's the most profound thing that's ever happened to me. And the things that I've learned have affected me personally, certainly have changed my marriage, have helped me with my children, and helping me with the congregation as well. And so you're going to see a number of things that are a bit MFT-informed. Uh, we're going to have a presentation today that it won't be loaded with scriptural. There'll be some scriptural references that are familiar to you, I think. But it's not so much a, a presentation on how to take, you know, these five things out of one chapter and, and kind of somehow flesh it out into this practical thing for you. Uh, it'll be a little bit different from that. Instead, and, and I think of this in, in um, kind of a lot of different genres of mental health or psychology, these are descriptions of things that God made. So I want you to keep that in mind. When we start talking about things and you go, where's the book, chapter, and verse for that? You get to go home and wrestle with that. I'm okay with that. You, you may go home and say, that idea is balderdash. That, you know, my wife would kill me if we did that. I'm okay with that. You can figure that out with her. But, but I would challenge you to consider these things from the standpoint of Romans chapter 1, where God is describing spiritual reality from what has been made. We spend a great deal of our educational time trying to describe what that is a little bit further. Things that we call chemistry, things that we call physics, things that we call biology, without which probably none of us would have survived much past our 25th birthday. Those are descriptions of what God has made. We don't learn chemistry in the Bible, right? But they are descriptive elements of what God has made. There are a lot of elements of psychology that are exactly that same thing. Now, it troubles us sometimes because uh, uh, maybe we put so much trust in the hard sciences that we just assume they're true. And then we get to something like psychology and we're kind of scared about, well, how much can we really know about it? Amen. Th those are things we've got to test by our lives and our experiences and especially making sure we're within the boundaries of Scripture. Amen. Amen. We need to gather on that today because if you're looking for book, chapter, and verse and everything today, you're, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. This is a different kind of, of presentation. We've entitled this in three parts, uh, From You and Me to We. And the idea about this is 
is that we're, we're moving in our marriages away from just being you and then me. And how do we create this third thing? This third thing that we call the we or the us as a third thing in the room. We're going to be talking about that with some interesting things, I hope. It's not so much a, a how, how-to skills project, but a little bit more about larger processes. Oh, I'm so glad this worked. I want you to think about your marriage as, as sacramental, something sacred. We know in the Roman Catholic Church they have official sacraments, right? I mean, if you've come out of, the, of a Catholic background, you know that there's these official sacraments in the church. We don't do that uh, in our, our restoration movement churches. We don't think of it that way. But the idea of a sacrament at, at a non-ritual, non-superstitious level, a non-extra-biblical level, the idea behind sacrament is simply what is sacred, what is special, uh, I think sometimes in our movement, we've, we've lost a little bit of touch on how to make sure things are sacramental. We make marriage sacramental in the sense that we make a big deal out of the ceremony, right? When we do our weddings, we really do weddings, right? Didn't you have a wonderful wedding in the church, right? Probably you did. Uh, full of all kinds of special sharing, you know, hundreds of bridesmaids and bridesgrooms and... <laughs> and events on Thursday night and Friday night rehearsal dinners, and you were lucky to even have any energy left for the wedding, let alone the wedding night. But we make them special. Uh, our baptisms are special. We don't just go, great, nice you're getting baptized here, dunk them quick, boom, church is over. We don't do that. We make it special. It's sacred. It's sacramental. And sometimes we just don't even think of marriage as being that way, and we should. It is such a sacred thing that's happening. The Bible uses a lot of descriptors for it. We know in Ephesians chapter 5, the famous passage about marriage, where Paul talks about this profound mystery about how the two become one. And he says, well, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And when I read that to this day, I feel kind of mystified. I go, right, both mysterious, amazing, profoundly mysterious. We'll never stop having married retreats because we're never going to figure everything out about marriage, are we? There's a mystery to it. And that sometimes in communication, it's too mysterious. We'd like help to clarify some of the mystery. I thought in particular the three winning couples, was it the three winning couples that had all three men, I guess they must have, they just sat down, that uh, said, who needs the married retreat more? And all three men raised their hands. I commend you for being so in touch with the needs of your wife. I mean, uh, your own needs. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. It's sacramental, it's special marriage. I mean, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon describes the way with a man with a maiden is too amazing. It's too amazing to talk about, to understand. It's sacramental. We think about marriage being worthy of honor as it's described in the book of Hebrews, to, to honor marriage, and that's what we're trying to do here, right? And that marriage is also worthy of work. I want us to be thinking about that uh, as we work together today and tomorrow, that there's work happening to make a great marriage. And I want to say thank you for your work during this time. That's what you're doing. We're, have, we're having a great time, and we're going to have fun, and it's great to get away in Palm Springs, and it, it's going to be a delightful weekend, but I thank you for your work. I'm doing some work here today. Lynn is doing various kinds of work one way or the other, uh, and I, I want to thank you for your work because that's what you're doing right now. You're kind of putting on your thinking hat and your heart hat, and you're doing some work. Thank you for the work that you're doing today. Amen. Okay, some ideas for these times. This part one that we're talking about, you plus me equals three. I want to talk there about how the togetherness part that we long for in marriage actually does depend on paying attention to and honoring the differences between us. The differences between us. You plus me 
equals three. We'll say more about that. Then hopefully at around three o'clock, we'll be doing the language of we. How do you build this partnership in the we with the right kind of communication where we understand each other at a different level? And again, hopefully not talking so much about uh, listening skills exactly as sort of a bigger picture of what makes communication powerful and possible. And part three tomorrow on Sunday, just you and me. We're going to talk about the things that, that you bring into your marriage, your family scripts, and how sometimes those scripts get in the way, and they're sitting there in the marriage, and you're thinking, wow, I thought it was just you and me, and here we are with these big fat scripts that we inherited that are somehow getting in the middle of our marriage. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Amen? All right, let's keep going. Oh, that's scary. Okay, there we go. Whew. Part one, that's, that's, uh, that's me and Lynn last year at our... <laughs> okay, that was, that was a while back. All right. Part one, you plus me equals three, right? One plus one equals three. We all know that, right? We learned that in first grade. One plus one equals three. No, usually one plus one equals two. And I, I want you to think about your marriage as a one plus one equals three equation. And start thinking about that when you take that home. That, that together there's three things in the room. There's you, there's me, and there's this thing called we. And all three are going to be important, and they work together over time, over and over again. We want to talk about that. Looks like funny math, though. I agree. Look in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 with me, and we will... Take a look at that scripture real quick, one you're, I'm sure you're well familiar with. Let's see here. Get rid of that. Anybody here got like electronic Bibles? Don't you find them to be slower than a real Bible? We've outsmarted ourselves. Right. In the old style, you don't even need batteries. I don't need a battery for a physical Bible. Exactly. This is sounding like a Kindle commercial. You've got pages you can bend and everything. Okay. In chapter 5, we're going to look in, uh, let's look in verse 28. We'll start up there. And again, about this mystery I referred to earlier. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Amen, wives? He who loves his wife loves himself. After, after all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two become one. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, there's a lot of things to be mystified about in this passage, but... One of the things that's a mystery here, I think, is the fact that Jesus and the church are one by this analogy. A man leaves his father and mother, same thing with the spouse, and the two become one flesh. So two people become one creation. Of course, we're thinking about sexuality, but you could be thinking about just spirituality. That's fine, too. The two become one. And he's saying that's analogous to Jesus and the church, that we are one. And I think one of the mysteries that I want to throw at you is that that doesn't mean these individual components disappear. There's still three things. Jesus, the church, and then this Jesus church thing that is together that Paul's talking about. Three things. Same thing with me and Lynn. There's Scott's life. There's Lynn's life. 
and then there, it's their relationship together. And I want to say to you that in my opinion, one of the great mysteries about this kind of math is that this keeps happening over and over again. Wouldn't it be kind of terrible if you only got to have sex once? You look forward to it all your life and you find the guy and girl of your dreams and go through the rehearsal dinner and the groom honoring parties and the wedding ceremony and you have your wedding night and you have sex and that's it. Because now you've become one. You were two and you became one and it's over, baby. I don't know, maybe the Lord could, I don't know, but it seems kind of discouraging to me. And so one of the things that we delight in about sexuality, some more than others, depending on the frequency in your life, but we delight in this idea that's kind of mysterious, that the two become one, but they don't stay one, do they? You become two again. And then you go do your thing, and she goes and does her thing, and then we come together again, we have sex again, we become one again, but then we become two again, we go our separate ways. And so this is happening over and over again in our lives physically and psychologically, spiritually, right? This is the beauty of this sort of physical, spiritual relationship going on, is that there's two, but then there's one, but then there's two, and then there's one. And I want us to be thinking about that kind of at a, a larger level about the relationship, that in order for the relationship, that, that one thing, that relationship thing to be growing and to be powerful and to be a wonderful partnership, those two individuals are going to have to keep growing too at the same time. For the three things to grow, they got to all three grow, okay? That's kind of the, the funny math that we're talking about here. Click. We just did that. We just talked about that. There we go. We talked about that. See how, we, see how good we are? So the two becoming one is an ongoing thing. So I want to get you to ask that question in your relationship now. Are you really growing? Is your spouse really growing? And then do you bring that to a relationship that is really growing? One plus one equals three. Let's talk a little bit more about it, about some things that can happen in relationships when that's not given a high profile. For example, sometimes one plus one equals two. That's when people are in a marriage where the people are too independent. That's where the relationship has gone AWOL. So you've got Scott and you've got Lynn, but there's no Scott Lynn. There's no Lynn Scott. I know, Scotland, Ireland, I got it. There's Scott, there's Lynn, but no relationship, right? That's because we've become too independent. I'm thinking about even early in our marriage, this happens a lot to ministry couples. We were 22-year-olds in the campus ministry, and she was doing work at Tufts University. I was at Boston University and Northeastern University, and we were cranking away all day and, and, and get out to campus early and study with a million people and, and come home after having invested in the Bible Talk Leaders and meet at our home in Arlington at about 11 p.m., really exhausted and wondering what happened to our sexual relationship. Well, there was a lot more missing than just the sex. We, we weren't building a life together that way. And I remember sitting down with Jim Blau, who was discipling me at the time, and he said, man, I know you guys want to work hard and you've got these campus ministry lives, but you've got to build some rituals around just being together, kind of the we, you got to figure that out. And so I remember he said, try this, make sure no matter what, you always have dinner together. If you're home, you have dinner together. If you're on campus, meet on the same campus and have dinner together. If you've had to go out with non-Christians, have dinner together with the non-Christians, but always be together for dinner and then get home at 10 o'clock when the campus day is done and spend an hour over a cup of herbal tea and you tell Lynn everything you did that day and she tells you everything she did that day. And we started doing that. 
And then we began, over time, momentum uh, built, and we were able to add more things to that so that we were very busy people, but we weren't independent where the relationship has gone missing. Does that make sense? I think for you, those of you, obviously, not most of us not in the ministry, that can happen if you have two careers. Or even if mom is a stay-at-home mom and she's building that career around taking care of children, you can be leading these separate lives and never really reconnect. You'll have one plus one equals two instead of one plus one equals three. Let's keep going. Sometimes one plus one equals one. And this is a little less obvious, I think. But sometimes one plus one equals one. This is where one of the partners has kind of gone AWOL. Maybe one of the partners in the marriage is a little more dominant and winds up speaking for their spouse all the time. And the spouse kind of gets smaller and smaller and shrinks a little bit and shrinks a little bit, has less opinions, less opinions. And one person in the relationship is kind of running the whole thing. And in, you know, therapy land, we might call that codependency or one person being independent. You can kind of call it anything that you want. But it's this idea that, that not both people are individually growing, therefore the relationship becomes what? Stagnant. Stagnant. Click. There we go. What we're looking for is a rich partnership where we can respect the differences between each other and let those lives grow, and then that's going to bring us back together in a very rich partnership that we call marriage. Uh, I'm thinking about, in terms of the dependency I talked about, there was a famous film made by a Seattle director, uh, Jerry Maguire, many years ago. Anybody seen Jerry Maguire? Feels recent to me, but I think it's probably been 20 years now, right? Uh, And in that film, at the very end, when Tom Cruise is trying to repair his badly damaged relationship with Renee Zellweger, He uh, crashes into the house. I want my wife back. I want my wife. And he's kind of pouncing around the room because they're estranged. And she comes in and she's not going to commit. And she's looking at him with daggers in her eyes. And Tom's going, you know, as Tom does. (laughs) And finally he's like, we live in a cynical world cynical world but you complete me you complete and she cuts him off and goes shut up you know you had me at hello and I was like shut up as well I didn't want to be stuck with having to do that that monologue with my wife and as much as I enjoyed that, that film and as much as I've enjoyed, some of you were in a dynamic marriage class on, based on family dynamics, and you probably read the book His Needs, Her Needs with Willard Harley. And I really actually love his book, but there was one thing in his book that, that I've, I've come to sort of see differently, I suppose, and that was he was talking about how spouses need to only have common interests. So if your wife loves archery but the husband doesn't love archery, you've got to give up archery. If the husband loves golf, but now I'm getting personal, I know. I know, I had you at hello. And, and he says that in the book, and I, I kind of I scratched my head, and I understand what he's talking about from a time perspective, that you don't, you don't want to just have these, you know, offshooting asymptotal lines like this, right, of lives. You don't want that. You want to be able to be unified and be together. But I think he was neglecting this idea that we don't want to be married just because without you, I'd be nothing. You complete me. Or without me, you'd be nothing. You'd be a zero. That, that's not a healthy way to build the we. Right? Instead... You've got this great life. 
she's got this great life or he's got this great life and we're building this togetherness that is a great life, right? We need all three there. I, I prefer instead Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's take a look at that, Ecclesiastes 4. Okay. This is a great crowd. They're here to have fun and to work. Uh, chapter 4, and we're going to look in verse 9. I prefer this to the Tom Cruise speech. Two are better than one. Rather than, you know, I'm the missing piece, you're the big O, whatever. No, uh, two are better Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So Lynn and I have kind of adopted this phrase. It's not so much you complete me or I complete you. We're looking at it now. We're better together. We're better together. It's not, it's not because I couldn't do anything without you. I've got my relationship with God. You have your relationship with God. It's not that we couldn't do anything, but we choose to be together and have chosen to be together because we are better together. It's a richer story together, right, church? It's richer together. Some of us might benefit. I'll, I'll throw out some books for, for um, just kind of extra reading if you want. If you've never read Scott Peck's book, uh, the Road Less Traveled, I'd recommend that. Now, not everything in his book I would recommend. He wrote the book as an agnostic, so you've got to read it with a grain of salt. But one of the things that he does in his book, The Road Less Traveled, I know you're memorizing it, The Road Less Traveled, is he talks about what love is and what love isn't and the mistakes and traps that people get into sometimes when they're relying on definitions of love that just kind of get them trapped. And one of the things he talks about, there's a chapter in there called Love is Separateness. And when you read that chapter, you'll see kind of what we're talking about here today, that there's a separateness that has to happen for the togetherness to be valuable. When you've lost all the separateness, the togetherness just becomes taken for granted. It kind of disappears too. You need them both to appreciate each other. The togetherness helps us to refer back to, we need some separateness in our lives. The separateness, we really need to be together too. Does that make sense? Wrestle with that a little bit, okay? Uh... When we were in Hong Kong, this was a story Lynn was going to tell, but when we were in Hong Kong, there was a point where, for example, she had raised our, our young kids, basically. I'd helped a little, but I was kind of a, a blockhead. And she did most of the work at the, the young age, and I came home and played, you know, choo-choo trains and tinker toys with them. She did all the hard work. But once they got into kindergarten full-time, and suddenly she had more hours in her day again where the kids were in school... She felt kind of empty that, that she'd lost stuff. She didn't have what she used to have before. And she and I had to sit down and have this talk about what, what makes you fly? What, 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 what do you love? What are your interests? What, what makes you tick again? And, and she hadn't thought about that in like 15 years. She'd just been kind of moving along the ministry agenda and the missionary agenda and the be a mom agenda. And she had to reinvest in well, what, what do I love? What are my hobbies? What are my interests? What do I love to read? What do I want to know more about? And I think even just our development academically has been helpful in these later years where I've done the MFT work, she's doing the COBOL work at, at uh, Gonzaga University. It's developed us into growing people again so that we bring more to the relationship. That's a powerful thing. Okay, we want to celebrate then and appreciate some of that separateness and especially the differences. And we're going to talk the rest of this time about our differences. I want to put this idea to you, and it's, it's really a... Um, an inference from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, the parts of the body, 
you know, the eye is not the same as the hand. Uh, not every part is a nose. Not everyone gets to be a mouth. Not everyone is an elbow. Not everyone's a big toe. Okay? So this is an inference from 1 Corinthians 12 that God has designed differences in the body in humanity, and it's not by accident. So the differences are by design. They are not accidental. And so when, when, you, when you have those times with your spouse, and I'll bet you have them, maybe some of you don't. You got, some of you may be like clones of each other. But most of us, we, we, when the, they talk about how the, when the honeymoon's over, that, that cliche, what they're talking about is that the euphoria of the wedding and the first year of being married starts to give way to the realization that we are not the same person that she likes this and I don't, and she likes these kinds of movies and I don't, and she prefers to make this for dinner, but I don't really like it that much. And, you know, <laughs> the differences come crashing back into the marriage and you wonder, oh my goodness, I married the wrong person. What happened to the person that I thought was my clone, you know? God made these differences by design to create rich partnership, I'm convinced. That's the beauty of the body of Christ and that's the beauty of the partnership of marriage. So we want to respect and love the differences. There's a famous um, uh, psychologist therapist in Seattle at the University of Washington named John Gottman. Some of you may have read some of his books on marriage. Gottman is a cognitive behavioral therapist and, and a very funny speaker. Uh, and, and Gottman runs a, a love lab at the University of Washington. So he does original research by having couples come in and do interviews with him that he tapes. and. So he's been doing this for about 25 years, and so he has all this data about what causes couples to stay together versus become estranged and get divorced. And, and Gottman came out with this stat. Now, this, again, this is not, you know, this is not in 3 Corinthians anywhere. <laughs> this is Gottman. Okay, grain of salt. But based on his research, he came out with this stat, which I kind of find remarkable. He said 70 percent of the differences, disagreements, points of conflict between two people in a marriage are irreconcilable. 70%. What he's talking about is things like your favorite color is blue, my favorite color is orange. Marriage doesn't fix that. You don't change that orientation by getting, right, now it's orange, great, you know. You know, Lynn liked devilish blue, Duke blue devils. I liked Carolina blue because we're in the southern part of heaven. <laughs> Clearly Carolina superior. Give up your dark blue and go to the baby. It's not going to happen. So these, the, there's so many things going on between us that are not reconcilable, strictly speaking, other than I see the difference and I appreciate the difference. Does that make sense? Okay, one of the ways that I assess this in couples when I'm doing couples work, couples therapy, is I use something that probably a lot of you are familiar with called the Myers-Briggs typology assessment. Uh, how many have ever done an MBTI test or a Myers-Briggs test? We've got a few, okay. Second book I'll recommend to you, and I, I think I sent Ron this, this uh, reference, was Please Understand Me by David Kiersey. Please Understand Me by David Kiersey. And I think, I think Kiersey is a professor at, uh, um, is University of California have a Fullerton campus, UC Fullerton? I think he may be a professor, Cal State Fullerton. I think he's a professor at Cal State Fullerton. So you can drop in and see him. <clears throat> but this guy, Kiersey, is an expert on this Myers-Briggs test, which has its roots back in Greek observations, Roman observations, post-Renaissance observations by psychologists, all the way into the work of Carl Gustav Jung, 
uh, into the 20th century, and it was picked up by a couple of Americans and expanded in the 1950s, including uh, Isabel Myers and her, her mother-in-law. And they began to work on this as lay academics and, and sort of reintroduce and redevelop it. And the Myers-Briggs typology is just a way of seeing your temperament, some things about who you are, and it helps people appreciate the differences in couples and in leadership teams. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. As, as Isabel Myers once said, the reason why it's a great descriptive test is she said, it's non-pathologizing. There's no bad answer. It's not bad to be one kind of person compared to being another kind of person. It just is what it is. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of those differences and kind of uh, see if you can kind of figure out where you are in that. Amen. Differences are by design, and Jesus made everything exactly as he wanted. Has, have you ever thought, you know, looking in the mirror, why am I like this? What's wrong with me? I have thought it. I'll bet you have too. And yet, the way that we're made, just as Jesus wanted, that's interesting to me, just as he wanted. We just talked about this. See, we're ahead. Okay? And I want you to think about this Myers-Briggs assessment. It's, again, it's a description, but it is a description of some of our hard wiring. The amount of psychological testing they've actually done with this test over the last 50 years gives it high validity. Uh, it gives it high reliability, which means that it does seem to test what we think it tests. And when you take the test many times over many years, it will come out the same. Okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about these differences. And I, I had hoped that my lovely wife would be here to tell you stories. So you have to listen to me instead. Okay, the Myers-Briggs temperament personality test has four axes. There's extrovert versus introvert. There's sensory versus intuitive, thinking versus feeling, and then judging versus perceiving. And we're going to talk about each of these a little bit. This, first of all, this extrovert-introvert. The difference between extroverts and introverts a few things. Extroverts charge their batteries by being in a crowd. That's my wife. It's very bad for her to be sick, not just because she's sick and she has things to say, but she would actually get energy from you. She would walk out of here feeling awesome just by being around you. I, by contrast, am an introvert. I do not recharge my batteries in a crowd. I recharge my batteries either by being alone or with one or two people, small group. That gives me life. When I'm in the crowd too long, my head explodes. <laughs> I'll be in a crowd like this, you know, when we're done at the end of the day, it probably everybody will run off anyway because of football. But if you hung around and I was, and I was in the crowd at 4 o'clock, after about 20 minutes, I'll still be smiling and hugging and high-fiving and asking your name for a third time and all these. But inside, I will be ready to sprint down the corridor, jump through the window into the lagoon just to get away. <laughs> when I was a young Christian, we would say, that's not being very giving. <laughs> so I had to sit on my introvertedness and decide it was sinful, right? I mean, this is what happens to us. But they're not sinful. It's an orientation. Some of us charge our batteries in the crowd. Some of us need to be more alone. Does that make sense? And when you get couples like that together, Lynn and Scott, and we're church builders and public people, then what happened, has happened to us for decades is, honey, it's time to go. 
uh, okay, okay, I just need to talk to these two people. <laughs> 20 minutes later. Honey, we gotta go. Okay, 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 uh, okay, I'll come with you. And then she gets stopped by two more people. Hey! And finally, by the next 20 minutes, you know, I'm looking like Mr. Hyde of the, of the duo. Honey, you must submit. Come out. And then I have to, you know, have a psychological breakdown for the next day. So I was listening to my department chair describe this assessment in one of our classes for assessing couples in therapy. And my department chair was describing this very thing. She goes, you know, public people if they're extrovert, introvert, and they're matched, and they get out in public, it's a real struggle for them. She said, but, you know, my husband and I found the solution. And I was, I was sitting in the back row going... <laughs> she goes, bring two cars. <laughs> and that's what we do in the Seattle church. <laughs> Not always, but sometimes we bring two cars if we know, you know, sometimes we bring two cars. And we've learned that it's okay. Rest easy. It's an orientation. It's not in the list of Galatians 5, 19 through 21. It's okay. Extrovert versus introvert. If you want to know more about this task, ask Larry Wong. He knows a lot about it. All right, the second access, are you intuitive or sensory? What does that mean? Fancy academic words. In intuitive means that you're more inductive. So you look at data, what's happening, and you look for principles. So you're seeing what's happening in the church, and you're going, yes, but what are the principles that will carry the L.A. church into the 22nd century? If you're a sensory person, you're just the opposite. Principles, schmensibles. What are we going to do? What action are we going to take? How are we going to make it happen? How are we going to flesh this out? Be practical. Be concrete. You know, the, it, probably, it, and it's interesting even to look at our churches around the movement, I suspect that most of our churches are sensory-led. The people that are, that are either lead evangelists or elders or so, a lot of them are sensories who are like, let's figure out how to make it happen. Not good or bad. It's just an orientation. I'm an intuitive, lens a sensory. So typically, uh, in January, we sit down in the living room and I say, Honey, let's figure out the theme of the church. Something original. Something that speaks to our values at the core. One year, our theme was like grace. And then the next year, it was perfect love. And I was happy. Those talks mean nothing to her. She's sitting there, and she's going, can we please talk about the congregational calendar? <laughs> or if we're teaching a class together, I'm like, we need to get in touch with the, the principled needs of the class. She's like, we have got to do a syllabus or nothing will happen. So she doesn't care about that stuff. I don't care about syllabuses, right, or syllabi. That's the difference between these intuitives and these concretes or sensories, right? It's an orientation. The next one. She had better stories than I did. Thinking versus feeling. 
Ooh, which is better? Which is right? You know, it's interesting that if, if um, I was never, I was never a Trekkie. I hear your pain. I was, <laughs> I was never a Trekkie, but I think Gene Roddenberry was kind of a genius when he came up with the original script for Star Trek because one of the things that he did that sometimes you miss if you're not looking for it in the episodes is that he deliberately set up this, this competition between Spock the Vulcan and the doctor who was really emotional, which is kind of unusual for doctors, isn't it? Do you actually know doctors like that? You go into their office and they're like, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a doctor. What's wrong with you? You know, that's not how they are. But in this show they were. And so McCoy was the emotional, you know, mess. And Spock was always the, doctor, your emotions will get the better of you, you know. And then Kirk was always in between them. He was supposed to be both. The rational the emotional, okay? So Roddenberry was on to something with this, and you'll see that if, if you look for it. But it's this difference between what are we? Are we rational beings or are we emotional beings? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Think about how God made us. I mean, if it was just the rationality piece, what would we be? We'd, we'd, we'd be pieces of Apple software <laughs> or Windows. If we were only emotion without rationality, we'd be chaotic and kind of crazy, and we'd probably all kill each other eventually. So it's this thinking versus feeling, and we actually need both, right? We need both. But some of us are more feeling and some of us are more thinking. Uh, I'm 50-50 I'm, I'm on that scale. So normally I'm full of feeling. When I, when I preach and when I counsel, I empathize, I connect. I want to know what's going on for you. I want to feel your pain. I'm okay with that. When I get in trouble with my wife, I turn into Mr. Spock. I suddenly become a T. Well, honey, let's look at this rationally. <laughs> and that doesn't go well because she's all F. She's all feeling. <laughs> doesn't mean that she's not awesome at the thinking part, too. She is. But she's full of zeal and passion at all times. I mean, that's just that's who she is. And I love that about her. That's what I need. This last scale is called judging versus perceiving. J versus P. All Christians would look at that first one and say, I guess that probably shouldn't be me. Judging, you know. We don't want to walk around the fellowship and people say, you're so good at judging others. <laughs> I love that about you. You're, you're so good at it. <laughs> judging. What that means, actually, are people who think compartmentally and they think through lists and they check things off. They get things done. That's what judging is about. So judges are people who think about completing steps, getting things done, closing things down, finishing. Does that make sense? Per perceivers are people, we usually associate them a little bit more with artists, but it's not just artistic people, but they're the, they want to keep it open. When you start talking about, let's check things off the list, they're like, list? What, what, you Philistine? What is wrong with you? You know, try talking to Steve Johnson about, we need to make these lists of, you know. He'll be off on his motorcycle in seconds, okay? So the P's, the perceivers, they want to keep it open. And a good example is my daughter, Ariel. Ariel is the only P in our family. So me and Lynn and Steven are all J's. 
She's now, you know, come to see this in certain humorous terms, like J is for jerk. <laughs> She's the only P, the perceiver. And so it was hard for her. We, we talk about this. She's 22 years old, so we talk about this now reflectively. And she's like, it was hard thinking that's how I'm supposed to be. Here's the three of you. I'm supposed to be like that, but it just kills me. And, and sure enough, when we, we were doing this test, she thought she was one thing because she thought she should be a J. And when she, when we, one day I walked into her room, and it, you know, it looked like a bomb had gone off, right? So to a certain extent, developmentally, maybe all teens go through a pee phase, you know? That's what I wonder. But I mean, there was just stuff everywhere. And, and I noticed that everything was open. Every drawer was open. The closet doors were open. The desk was open. And I, was, I had been through this, and I was just, the, the gears were turning for me. I was going, she's not a J. And then I asked her, I said, Ariel, do you like it this way? Without a hint of irony, she had been working on something. She looked up from her desk. She's like, what? I said, do you like it this way? And she said, she said, yeah, absolutely. That way I know where everything is. <laughs> I turned to my back and walked upstairs going, Would you find anything ever? Yeah. So she retook the test, recognizing that she was a P, and when she read her profile, she laughed out loud. She said, that's me. That, that's more who I am. And it's important for us to be able to acknowledge more who we are and then respect the differences in each other, right? Because we have a country and sometimes even a church where there's what I would call cultural privileging. For example, in America, which is more privileged, the extrovert or the introvert? Extroverts. If you're an American, you should be extroverted. How about this intuitive, principled piece versus practical, figure out how to get it done? What, what's America? Get it done. America's all about, you got, you got to make this practical. You know, we got to make this practical. That's America. How about thinking versus feeling? Thinking, right? Probably since uh, the Enlightenment in Europe, that's it. thinking is, is primo. Thinking is privileged ahead of feeling when really they're on the same level, okay? Thinking is privileged over feeling. Judging versus perceiving, what do you think? The judging piece, right? Get things finished. And so you have in America this, this privileging uh, of what I call the ESTJ, which in this book is called the supervisor, and I think we make assumptions that that must be what Jesus was. And therefore, everyone needs to be like Jesus, therefore, everyone needs to be an ESTJ. Now, you're going to have some fine leaders in the church here. You're going to have some fine leaders in this nation. You're going to have some fine leaders at your business who are supervisors. They're ESTJs. But it's only one of 16 different ways of being in the world. And, and many more than that, I'm sure. This is just one way of measuring it, right? There are other, other ways to do this. So I want us to think about what our biases are with that. And therefore, sometimes how we try to change each other is in ways that we're undermining the beauty of the differences in our relationship. Yeah, we want to grow to be more in the image of Christ, but we don't know that Jesus is the, the ESTJ. Jesus got all of them. Jesus got all of them. He's an E-I-I-S-T-F-J-P person, okay? He's got all of it. And therefore, we learn to respect and recognize the differences in each other, and that will build this beautiful blend of a marriage. Sometimes I'll, I'll get with married people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut us off in a couple minutes and give us a break. Does that sound good? You need a break? I got you. I hear you. Okay. Me too. It's a big crowd. <laughs> so, 
But I want us to appreciate these differences in each other. Sometimes when I'm counseling marrieds, and I'll, I'll routinely give this test as a homework piece just to see what they can do with it as an assessment tool. And every now and then you'll get some marrieds that line up exactly alike. It's rare because the people that are kind of exactly alike feel like the same person. They don't argue much. They don't come in to see therapists, okay? That's okay too. If that's the kind of person you are, there's a blessing in that. There'll be other things that are not a blessing about what some of the differences would bring. And when I get with couples where they're, they're different, and usually the ones that are fighting the most and having the most chronic struggle are people that are all four different on each scale. You've got somebody who's an E and the, the husband's an I, and then the one person's the, the intuitive, the other's the sensory. And when that happens, they're having a hard time connecting because their instincts are different on these different scales. And what needs to happen for them is a couple of things at least. One is you got to slow it down. It's going to take more time to figure each other out. It doesn't work well under pressure and trying to do it fast, okay? Secondly, be encouraged by the idea that you will bring something very rich into the world. As you work out a marriage with all these different components, it's going to be a very rich story that you bring into the church and that you bring into this society to make a difference for other people. Amen? Okay, many other things we could be talking about. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break, though, right? And then we'll have the, the, uh, the communication piece starting at 3 o'clock. Right back here? Right back here? Okay, right back here at 3 o'clock. Thank you all. <laughs>